let me just uh, remind, uh, remind you the theme of, of this conference is uh, gospel victory. And uh, so, and we heard last night that we need to take seriously the promises of the gospel. And part of this promise is, is the earth will be covered with the knowledge of the Lord. And so we believe that. It's not just something that we hope is going to happen. It will happen. And just a reminder that a big part of this word is French speaking. <laughs> you didn't know that? <laughs> if you go out to my booth, you're going to see a lot of flags. Each one of these flags means that country speaks French. And sometimes they have also many other dialects. But the main language, the language of the authority of the study is French. And so, uh, the, as we know right now, there are about 300 million people who speak French on the planet. According to Forbes, a study has been done by 2050, 2050, French will be the most spoken language in the world. I didn't make that up. Okay. That was happy. Because I know that when everybody speaks French, that means the Lord is ready to come back. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, that is to say, French is a, is a language that is in a great need. Uh, most of the French speaking is West Africa. And people don't realize that a big part of Africa is French speaking. And this is also where there is the biggest need for the gospel. This is also where there is the biggest growth of the gospel. And so uh, what is happening is uh, we have this commitment, this command for Christ. It says, go to all nations. And Jesus didn't say evangelize, although it's part of it. What did he say? Make disciples. The problem is in West Africa, this growth is a lot of evangelism, a lot of the gospel prosperity evangelism, and no discipleship. The average study for a leader or a pastor, this study is one hour of biblical education. And that leads to a lot of problems in that massive church growth in this part of Africa. So I have a video here, about four minutes video, that is giving back the story of this, and I will just conclude after the video. What Dr. Pride, uh, who started Third Millennium Ministries, with whom we're working, is saying. So I'm in charge of the French-speaking word, and so all these video courses are being done now. We started only a few years ago. We now have 11 video courses in French already spread around the, the, the world. We have three in the workings, and all of that out of Moscow, Idaho. So again, I want to thank you all for being part of this project. We are from out of, out of here reaching the word, bringing biblical education to the French-speaking word to every home. Every iPhone should have it, and that's our goal, to the point where we want to have saturation of teaching and theology to all the leaders, but also all the people in the French-speaking word. Thank you very much. And with that, let me introduce uh, Pastor Douglas Wilson. He's the pastor of Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, and a senior fellow of theology at New St. Andrews College. He also serves as an instructor at Greyfriars Hall, a ministerial training program at Christ Church. 
He and his wife, Nancy, have three children and, according to this bio, a metric ton of grandkids. Uh, have you measured that officially? Or is, we should get a big scale to figure that out. Um, and he's written numerous books. Please welcome Pastor Douglas Wilson. According to uh, reliable reports, we don't have um, we don't have detailed histories, but according to the reliable port, uh, reports that can be sorted out of early church history, the apostles fanned out uh, all around the the world and transformed the world. In uh, within two centuries, the world is a completely different place. Now, someone might argue, argue back and say this, that's not unique to Christianity, that, you know, there have been mass movements before of other kinds, other sorts of mass movements. Uh, for example, uh, Islam exploded out of uh, Arabia, and within 100 years, the world was a completely different place, All right? So uh, within a century of the uh, formation of the Islamic faith, they were up in uh, Europe uh, turned back at the Battle of uh, Tours, um, but you know that's a century. That, that's a mass movement. They they can do they can do that sort of thing, too. But keep in mind, there's something uh, profound, uh, profound, and it's centrally important in this. Uh, what the Muslims did was they exploded into the world and they, by force of military might, conquered the world. That's a story that's as old as dirt. Right? That, that goes back, that's, that's the way of the world. The Apostle Paul says our weapons are not carnal, but spiritual. Our weapons are mighty for the casting down of throng, uh, strongholds. So what do, you, what do you have? You have the apostles armed with nothing. Right? There, no armies, no navies, no resources, no headquarters back home. Nothing. And they they fan out, and simply through preaching the word, simply through preaching the gospel, the world is turned upside down. Now, this is not to say, and because we're not Gnostics, this is not to say that there is nothing to Christian military prowess. All right? That's not, that's, there have been some magnificent military battles in the history of the Christian uh, church, but those are always the fruit and the consequence of prior gospel preaching. The conquest for Christians, the conquest is established by the word. The conquest is established through preachers. Later on, um, there were three great battles, uh, um, the battle of uh, Malta and the Battle of Lepanto and the Battle of uh, Vienna. Uh, three great battles where the Christians engaged with the Muslims and the Christians were, by, by the grace of God, uh, were victorious. And that was a good and glorious thing, but it's not a foundational thing. For us, that's the, the sword, the power of the sword, is not the ba- that's not the foundational uh, basis from which we operate. What is it what is it that overcomes the world, John asks in 1 John. What is it that overcomes the world? Is it not our faith, he says? Is it not our faith? Faith is that which goes forth conquering and to conquer. We, we believe in Jesus. We proclaim 
Jesus and we have faith in Jesus, which is a very different thing than having faith in faith. All right, so um, faith in faith, there have been mass hysterias and bad ideas, you know, people who do things that look unreasonable. The man of faith looks unreasonable to the world, and the unreasonable man looks unreasonable to the world, all right? So there have been plenty of times where a great man of faith says, we can do this, and the world says, are you crazy? And then there are other people who say, we can do this, a children's crusade or some cockamamie idea, and people say, are you crazy? And yeah, the answer is yes, actually. Uh, <laughs> This, this really is a bad idea. But for the man of faith, there are things that look like bad ideas. They, they, they look crazy, but they, this person is keeping Christ central. They're, they're obeying the gospel. They're obeying Christ. They're, they're submitting to the Great Commission. And they understand what the one um, business executive once said, uh, nothing was ever accomplished by a reasonable man. Nothing was ever accomplished by a reasonable man. Now, there's unreasonable faith, and there is unreasonable unreasonable. And you want to say, well, how can I tell the difference? How can we tell the difference? Faith. That's how you tell the difference. Now, faith in faith wants to just gin up an emotion and go charging off on the basis of the emotion. Faith in Christ is always a response to the word. Right? The word says go, and we say, yes, Lord, and we go. The word says, all authority is given to me, and we say, yes, that is true. And we, go, we proceed on the basis of that. But it's faith in Jesus, it's faith in Christ, not faith in faith. And it's not faith in arms. It's not faith in military might. It's not faith in anything like that. It's faith in the power of Christ and his word. Now, this, the difference between uh, when you stop having faith in Christ, oftentimes the end, the end result of that is that you find yourself uh, first having faith in your own faith and then losing faith in your own faith. Right? You, you become pessim pessimistic. You become pessimistic in your assumptions in contrast to the, uh, the mighty men of faith who have no, uh, nothing to go on in terms of external resources. So contrast um, a, a typical upper-middle-class, modern evangelical who loves the Lord, loves the Word, and is taught the general pessimistic outlook of the, that, the, that the Christian church in North America is steeped in. All right? He comes home, had a hard day at work, and he watches the evening news before dinner. He's watching the evening news on a flat-screen television the size of Rhode Island, He's got a little power lazy boy that bzzz, bzzz. After the evening news, that, you know, he watches it, and it's the same old stuff right out of the middle. Everything's the same old stuff, always the same old stuff. He bzzz, gets up, walks into the kitchen. His wife is preparing dinner, and the countertops are, are uh, polished granite that wouldn't disgrace the palaces of Suleiman the Magnificent. <laughs> and he walks over to the fridge, and opens the fridge and gets a cold, you know, pours a cold drink, and then he uh, puts the glass in the ice maker, and it doesn't work, and he says to his wife, we're going to have to get this ice maker fixed before the Lord comes. <laughs> For first, first world problems, right? And then he starts reporting to her what he saw in the evening news. Things are falling apart. It's the last days. 
Things have never been so terrible. <laughs> I'm going to go back to my lazy boy. <laughs> I've got my cold drink now that has no ice in it. These are the signs of the end. And then compare that to someone like uh, the Oxford martyrs, uh, Latimer and Ridley, who were uh, martyred in Oxford, England, uh, and they were, tie- they were burned, the- burned at the stake. And uh, Latimer says to Ridley, right before they're burned, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall today, by God's grace, light such a candle as I trust will never be put out in England. Today we will light such a candle as I trust will never be put out. He, he's about to be burned at the stake, and he says to Ridley, we've got them now. <laughs> now compare that to the guy who says, it's the last days, woe is us, what are we going to do? The ice maker doesn't work. What is it? What is it that enables someone like Latimer to say something like that? We've got them, you know, I trust that we're going to light such a candle as will never be put out in England. And he's right. And the other guy, living in cozy comfort, is not right. How, how is that possible? It reminds me of the Marine General in the Korean War. Um, I don't know if you know much about the Korean War, but there was a time when we, we had pushed up the peninsula, and then the Chinese were worried about our encroachment on China, and so the Chinese flooded into the war and uh, overwhelmed our forces. And there was a moment in uh, the Korean War where there was a, a Marine general, his forces were completely surrounded by Chinese hordes, just completely and totally surrounded. And he was looking out at all of them, and then he said to someone, well, they can't get away now. (laughs) What is that? Well, that's courage. And courage, in the Christian uh, context, courage is something, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. All right, so what we want is faith in Christ, not faith in faith, not faith in our own wisdom, not faith in our own strength, because we have none. Remember, Jesus uh, sent his disciples out to disciple the nations with nothing. Right? Well, he said, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then go. All right? Then go. And I want you to preach the gospel to every creature. So, we're not talking about winning others over to our opinions. We're not talking, uh, we're not talking about t- talking people into things. We are rather talking about life from the dead. We're talking about water for the desert. We're talking about resurrection in the boneyard. That's what we're talking about. Jesus says, go, tell everybody about this, and as you tell them, it's going to be like that scene in Uh, in Narnia where Aslan breathes on the stone creatures and they start to turn color and start to come to life again. That's what happens. When the gospel, when you go out and proclaim the gospel, that's what God intends to do with his word. Now, we cannot... Uh, we, we cannot expect it to happen in exactly the way that we would anticipate, but we know that it's going to happen. And as you look back over the last 2,000 years, that, that has been exactly what has been happening. If you, if you were a Marxist, if you were an atheistic secularist, and you're looking at the demographic um, development all over the, all over the world right now, what is, 
what is the formidable threat to your worldview? It's the Christians, right? It's the Christians. Slam dunk, no question, it's the Christians. We are overrunning the place. Now, we don't think so because we're too worried about the ice maker. <laughs> All right. We don't see that, but if you, if you read some of uh, Philip Jenkins' uh, books, The Next Christendom and describing what's going on all over the world, if you're a, the, the Muslim expansion is a panicked expansion. They, they don't know what to do because all of, their, all of their worldview is coming to pieces because if you're faithful to Allah, he gives you right-handed military conquest, and that's not been happening for centuries. And so they're, they're flailing. It's sort of like the kamikaze attacks that the Japanese were launching at the end of the war. war. That, was, that was a sign of panic and desperation, not a sign of confident, um, uh, confident conquest. If you're a secularist, Christians are everywhere. Christians are in China. South America is becoming evangelical and Protestant faster than Europe was during the course of the Reformation. Africa is exploding, and we need to catch up because, as we just heard, um, there is a lot of, um, shall we say, fruitiness. As the, as the Christian church explodes, if you look at church history for the last 2,000 years, there have been glorious conquests and a lot of fruitiness, and we have to, Jesus says, disciple the nations. This is what you've got to do. This is how you've got to follow it through. Teach them everything that I've commanded you. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. That's the end game. We don't start with that. We, we start by preaching the gospel. And we start, what, what do you have when you have a, a thousands and thousands and thousands of day-old Christians? You have an immature church. You have immaturity. You have the church in diapers. You have people that haven't learned things yet. And that's why Jesus says, disciple the nations, teaching them to, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. So, 1 John 4, 14 says this, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. That, this is one of Christ's titles. This is one of the ways we name him. He is Savior of the world. Now, I want you to suppose you're, you're taking a vacation, some beautiful lake or oceanfront vacation, and you're walking down the boardwalk, and you see a plaque, a big bronze plaque, in, in, in honor of um, Billy Williams, who, who, um, who saved, heroically saved uh, Susie Jones, and he became known as the savior of Susie Jones. And you say, oh, that's an interesting story. Can you, you ask one of the natives, can you, can you tell me this story? How, how is uh, how Susie Jones doing? Oh, she, she died. It's very sad. Died when? After the, no, after the rest of the, no, she, he, he didn't actually save her. But we call, he tried. We call, <laughs> <laughs> Why on earth would you put up a plaque in honor of the lifeguard who tried to save Susie but failed to save Susie? Now, I, I want to ask you, why would we call Jesus the Savior of the world if the world's not saved? What? That makes no sense. I mean, no sense. Jesus is the Savior of the world. That means at the end of this process that he gave us, the world will, in fact, be saved. 
The Apostle John tells us that he and others with him have seen something and they testify to it. Now, our duty as Christians is to stand with the apostles and join our witness to theirs. But how can we if we don't see what they saw? And how can we testify to something we've not seen? How can we testify to these realities when I can't get ice for my drink? They saw that the Father sent the Son with a particular purpose in mind. This is the will of the Father to which Christ was submitting in the garden when he prepared to go to the cross. The Father sent the Son as the Savior of the world. That's the mission. The Father sent the Son as the Savior of the world. And Christ said, is there any other way to do this? That's how he prayed in the garden. Is there any other way? And the Father says, no. And and Jesus says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So he submitted to God's way of saving the world, which is Christ going to the cross, which means that if if this is going to come about, it's going to come about by us keeping the gospel, the death of Christ on the cross, his burial, his resurrection from the dead in accordance with the scripture. We're going to keep that message central. That's how you can go out into the world defenseless and not be defenseless. If you go armed with gospel, if you go with blood as your weapon, if you go with the cross of Jesus Christ as that which you are proclaiming, then everything is going to go down before you. If we look at the phrase, Savior of the world, consider the two main words in it. First, world means we're talking about the post-millennial vision of gospel conquest, gospel victory. Second, Savior means that we're talking about salvation, gospel proclamation, church planting, not something that's partisan or political in the first instance. The words are very plain, and words very much like them are found throughout all of Scripture. This is the apostolic witness. Is it ours? Have we seen this? If we have not, it's because we're not paying attention. We, we, didn't, we've not, we need to sit down, read through the Bible, your next read through the Bible, say, I want to assume for a moment, because it says multiple places, that it's God's intention to save the world. And I want to see if that, if that resonates as I read through Scripture, all of Scripture. God, God is not going to be content with anything at the end other than a saved world. Jesus did not come to give it the old college try. Jesus did not come in order to save the world if they believe, but we know that they probably won't. That's not the mission. John 12, 47 says, And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, Jesus says that he did not come to judge the world. But what do most Christians think Jesus is going to do when all is said and done? Right, judge the world. Most Christians think that Jesus is going to, because of our recalcitrance, because of our refusal to believe, Jesus is going to come and say, I tried to save you guys, but you wouldn't let me. I I tried to save you, and now I have to condemn you. But Jesus says, I didn't come to do that. I didn't come to do that. I came to save Americans. I came to save the Chinese. I came to save the Japanese. I came to save uh, Africa. I came to save the world. We see the same thing in a very famous passage indeed, the most famous passage in all the Bible, I think largely because of football games. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to, get, to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Uh, let's go over this. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I wonder what that means. <laughs> it's looking desperate for my pessimism. I may... <laughs> my, how, how shall we rescue my pessimism? Let's have a Greek word study. <laughs> but in the Greek, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. <laughs> the reason Christ came into the world was to save it, and most emphatically not to try to save it. Jesus did not come to give it an attempt. Well, you know, that's not the point. The untutored Samaritans in John's gospel knew more about this than most modern Christians do. John 4, 42. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now, I want to submit it to you. You cannot have Jesus as the Savior of the world unless somehow, somewhere, around here somewhere, you have a saved world. Now, you might say, but but I've seen the evening news, and I I know all my coworkers at work, and what about about abortion and the carnage of abortion, and what about uh, same-sex mirage, and what about uh, everything seems to, when I look with my eyes, I see everything falling apart. Right? What, what is, does that look like a saved world to you? Does that look like a saved world to you? I want to use an illustration that my dad uses in his book, uh, The Principles of War. He said, suppose you're a soldier on Normandy Beach. Okay? You're pinned down, and enemy fire whistling over your head. You're behind a sand dune, and you are having great difficulty getting to the next little dune. Right? The, the resistance is fierce. So you're pinned down, and your, your little quadrant of the battle is going poorly. Right? You're not, you're, you don't see how you're going to be able to get where you're going. And he says, and my dad says, suppose we then take a, make this illustration a little bit uh, far-fetched, ludicrous. Down the beach, toward you, a, a, a page from a notebook is blowing, and it blows right to you, and you grab it, and you look at it, and somebody careless at General Eisenhower's headquarters said, dropped his notebook and pages blew down, and, he, and you see what the mission is. And the mission is to occupy, uh, conquer Berlin, occupy Europe, defeat the Germans. And you're looking at that overarching mission, that's what the mission is, and you can't get to the next sand dune. Now what's the problem here? You need to understand the difference between, uh, 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 the difference between a local conflict and the global purpose. You can lose your life in a winning battle. Right? The, your family back home can be sad because they lost you when it's a day of great rejoicing for the nation. Right? Do you see that? You, you can have global conquest and you can have individual tight difficulties. And the tight difficulties, if, if, what, you, what you need is when you have faithful Christians in tight difficulties, they must have the eschatological hope of knowing that our commander has every intention of conquering the world over time. Right? This, in other words, um, 
When I say Christ is the Savior of the world, that means at the end of this process, at the end of this war, at the end of this venture of global evangelization. It's not something... um, When Jesus told the disciples to go, they, they didn't have a right 10 minutes in to act like small kids on a cross-country car trip. You know, are we there yet? You know, are we there yet? No, we're just 10 minutes in. We're just 10 months in. We're just 10 years in. Uh, we, but the whole process, if you look at the last 2,000 years, the whole process is profoundly encouraging. 1 John 2.2 says this, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Propitiation means to turn aside wrath. Why did Christ give his flesh on the cross? For the life of the world, John 6.33, John 6.51. Why did Christ give his body up on the cross? For the life of the world. That means the world is coming alive. That's what that means. Back to propitiation. Propitiation is the averting or turning aside of wrath. God's wrath was upon our world for our sinfulness And in the cross, Christ provided a propitiation for the entire world. Notice that God was attempting nothing. God is attempting nothing. He is doing something. He's not attempting anything. He's doing it. The next day, John 1, 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want to submit to you that the Lamb of God is the one who takes away the sin of the world. That, this is good news. If, if our, is, our, is our job to fan out and tell the whole world, it's, it's all going to burn, man? And most of, you too, most of you guys too. No, we're preaching deliverance, we're preaching forgiveness, we're preaching salvation. Hell is a reality. Rebellion is a reality. All those things are true. This is, a, this is a serious venture. But it's not the kind of serious venture that will conclude with an unsaved world. It will not conclude with a dead world. Because John testified, this is the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't offer to take away the sin of the world. He takes it away. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says this. That is, God was in Christ... God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now, Paul then turns in that same chapter, he says, we beseech you, therefore, be reconciled to God. We don't say, um, here's another way of uh, putting this, we are not involved in trying to get Jesus elected president. This is not a political campaign. We're not trying to garner votes. We're not trying to get people, we're not handing out brochures so that people will change their minds and decide to vote for Jesus so he can become our president. No, he became our king 2,000 years ago, and we are supposed to spread out to all the villages and little hamlets or all around this lost world and tell them who is the king now. The capital city has fallen. The principalities and powers have been humiliated. The devil has been destroyed that he might, it says in Hebrews, that he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil. God has shamed the principalities and powers in the cross of Jesus Christ 2,000 years in our rearview mirror. That's all done. 
It's all accomplished. We are not supposed to um, try to canvas votes for electing Jesus president. We are supposed to be heralds announcing that he has been crowned the king. We are announcing what has been done. So in, in the great um, ascension of the Lord Jesus into heaven that's uh, talked about in Daniel 7, he ascends into the presence of the Ancient of Days, riding on the clouds of heaven. And then the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days, and he's given universal dominion, power, authority, majesty. That is something that Jesus possesses now. He possesses it now. And we're supposed to tell everybody, and, we, and we're, we're supposed to tell them in such a way that they believe it, and this is the catch. We can't tell them to believe it if we don't believe it. We need to believe it. Because it's, we're told this multiple times, over and over and over. It's not, a, it's, it's not a hidden, tucked away thing. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We carry on the ministry which was first entrusted to the apostles. And that is to proclaim the word of reconciliation. Now, this is committed to us, it says, entrusted to us. Now what can be said of unfaithful emissaries who altered the message? We no, we no longer say that God has actually reconciled the world to himself in the cross because we don't think that he did. And our problem is that we're as full of unbelief as the people we preach to. We're as full of unbelief on these things, on, on, this, on the scope and extent of gospel hope, as the people we preach to. This is not a man the lifeboats evangelism. That's not what we're doing. It's not a man the lifeboats evangelism. The, this world is not God's Vietnam with the few elect faithful being helicoptered out of Saigon. That's not what this is. This is a war of universal, cosmic, worldwide conquest. Sum it up as one writer did many years ago. Sum this whole thing up in four words. We win, they lose. We win, they lose. And of course, we don't win in our own name, in our own right. It's the Lord Jesus. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, popular evangelicalism wants the atonement to touch every last man, woman, and child. Right? So they want everybody to have a piece of the atonement. But in order to get it to do so, the touch has to be made ineffectual. That is, if you're not a universalist. If you, if you believe that they're in the reality of heaven and hell then Jesus has to do his part, and then you have to do your part. And if you don't do your part, then the thing is a system fail. And pessimistic Calvinists, um, and, and believe me, the, the brethren in that tribe are plentiful. <laughs> pessimistic Calvinists want the touch of God to be effectual for half a dozen people. <laughs> for thee and for me, and I've got my doubts about thee. Uh, so popular evangelicalism, in the chasm between God and man, popular evangelicalism wants a big, expansive, wide bridge that everybody in the world can fit on, but the bridge only goes halfway across. But everybody can fit on it, and then you have to figure out how to get the rest of the way. Our pessimistic Calvinistic brethren want a rope bridge. <laughs> One of those bouncy rope bridges that you can see pictures of in National Geographic or maybe a zip line. <laughs> one at a time. One at a time. I don't want too many of you scuzzy people making it into heaven. One at a time. Slow it down. Slow it down. 
why can't we have a great wide bridge that goes all the way across? Why can't the nations stream to Christ? Why? Well, someone's going to say, well, the reason why we can't have a great wide bridge that goes all the way across is because Jesus said broad is the way to destruction. Narrow is the way. Huh, it's, uh, I got gotcha. <laughs> you. Thought you thought you were going to skate right by that verse, but that verse is in the Bible. Yes, that verse is in the Bible, and Jesus says, uh, you're going to say, uh, people of that day are going to say, you taught in our streets. We heard you preach. Where? What's Jesus talking about when he's talking about brought us the way to destruction? He's talking about first century Jews. Because Jesus says, you're going to say, what, what about us? What about us? We, we heard you preaching. We heard you teaching. What about us? And Jesus said, you're going to be shut out because brought us the way to destruction. Most of you are going to reject this. Narrow is the way. Narrow is the way. And then Jesus says, and many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom. Jesus says two things. He says two things. He says it's narrow, few are going to find it, and then a whole bunch of Gentiles are going to flood in, and the kingdom is going to be taken from you, and it's going to be given to those who will bear the fruit of it. So broad, broad salvation, expansive salvation, glorious salvation for nations and tribes and peoples is not liberalism. Bringing the gospel to everybody is not compromise. We're supposed to preach the gospel to every creature, and we're supposed to pre preach the gospel to every creature knowing that over time, over the centuries, it's going to be effectually accomplished. The job is going to get done. We don't want lots and lots of people halfway saved, and we don't want a, a tiny bedraggled handful of elect people to be all the way saved. I remember when I was first struggling through the, all the issues of God's sovereignty, in short, when I was in the process of becoming a Calvinist, I wondered what, there's a famous book, uh, a famous book called The Sovereignty of God by A.W. Pink. And uh, A.W. Pink, I knew, was a Calvinistic author, and I, I, and I wondered what he would do with John 3.16. So I, I went and found a book by Pink, who was a famous Calvinistic author, and I said, what do you do with God so loved the world that he gave his only... And I turned there, and he said, well, uh, world here means the elect. And if you couple that with Pink's assumption that the elect is like 16 people tops, <laughs> I thought, oh, for you know, I thought, oh, for pity's sake, and just put it down. This, you're trifling with the text. You're you're trifling. Uh, when you, when you talk that way, you're letting the Arminians have as much glory in the text as you you glory in Romans. 8, 9, 10, and 11, and they can glory in all the passages that talk about salvation for the world. They're, those passages are actually in there. The thing that, the, the, the key, and this really is key, es eschatology, an optimistic eschatology, is that which allows us to take all the world passages at face value and all the elect passages at face value, put it all together, and what you have is a glorious consummation where people from every tribe, language, and nation are gathered before the throne, and they, they, they sing, worthy is the lamb that was slain. It's John, when John hears the number, 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe, and then it says... And then I turned and looked. I turned and looked. And what did he see? He saw the number that he heard. Right? I heard 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 144,000. And then he turned and he looked. 
and he saw what he had heard. What did he see? I saw a multitude that no one can count. I saw a multitude that no one can count. How many are the elect of God? You can't count that high. You can't count that high. Abraham was shown the night sky, and he said, so shall your descendants be. How many is that? Well, there are more galaxies. There are more galaxies than Abraham saw stars with his naked eye. So how many are going to be saved? All the stars in the sky, Hubble telescope and all, everything. How many are going to be saved? The elect of God's purpose toward our lost, sinful, sorry planet, God's purpose is a gracious purpose that is going to be fulfilled. It's going to be done. It's going to be accomplished. And that means when we get up to go out and tell people, we are not trying to get something done for God. We are telling people about what God has done for us. Right? We're, not going to do, we're not doing anything to get it done for God. We are resting in the fact that God has done it already. All the essential work is done. And our job is to preach the potent word. Jesus is Lord. Our Father in God, we thank you for your kindness to us. I pray that as we meditate on these things, that you would quicken us and stir us up. I pray that you'd give us a zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ and a, and a corresponding zeal for the salvation of lost and sinful men and women. Father, we commit it all to you in Jesus' name, and amen.